0: The Public Money Pot is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from and where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back once again to the public money pod i'm justin Marlowe, joined as always by caretaker of chickens and extractor of cider and uh, passive fantasy football team journal manager liz farmer liz welcome back
1: <laughs> thanks justin um speaking of chickens i now have a new uh skill to add to my my resume i guess uh so chicken stylist, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. (laughs) And that came about because this weekend, I started, I have a couple of silky chickens, which have crazy, like, fluffy, I keep calling it fur, but it's it's feathers, um, all around. And one of them, I thought, had gone blind. And as it turns out, she just needed hair trimmed all around her eyes see. so she could see it.
0: <laughs>
1: Which was no small feat, might I add.
0: <laughs> wow. So many questions. Do you do you <laughs> is it do you use a scissors or do you pluck the feathers or how do you how do you do that? Uh,
1: scissors, scissors. Yeah. And it's a little difficult because her feathers are still growing in. So I don't want to get those ones. And it's yeah, but she, you know, once you, you get her down in your lap, she tends to hold still. So at least that that was. Not
0: as bad as I thought it would be. Wow! Wow! I. <laughs> who knew? Well, that that indeed yeah. a, uh, a a very marketable skill, I would think. So <laughs> I'm Sure to include that on your on your CV. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, uh, so that said, <laughs> we can <laughs> uh, uh, talk about what we our our agenda for today is to to continue mm-hmm. our ongoing discussion about the intersection between uh, climate risk and natural disasters and public finance and especially state and local budgeting and finance. And uh, we're going to have a little bit later on Colin Ford from the Pew Charitable Trusts, who is uh, one of the authors on a really, really interesting, important recent report from Pew on the effect of wildfires on state budgets. And I think that's a it's a great an important thing to discuss now. And I think one of the things that we've talked about here on the pod, Liz, and I know you've talked about in your own work is the, the many ways that these kind of abstract longer term risks, uh, that we think about when we think about climate risk and, and climate mitigation, in fact, are, are happening now. In fact, we can point to effects, whether it's broader, more intense, more frequent natural disasters, uh, particularly in areas like wildfires, flooding and so forth that we can debate all day the extent to which climate risk has contributed to those disasters, but there's no question that they're happening and they're happening more frequently and they're becoming a concern for budgeting and finance folks in states and localities all over the country. And I think one of the interesting things we've seen too is that those risks are affecting not just the public finance side of it, but the what we might call public finance adjacent side of it as well. There was a report from a couple of the ratings agencies that came out this summer that talked about how for investor-owned utilities, right? So not, not public utilities, but investor-owned utilities, the Pacific Gas and Electric and Southern California Edisons of the world and others, that one of their key factors going forward, according to the ratings agencies, is going to be what sorts of funds, what sorts of governance structures, what sorts of contingency plans they have in effect to be able to manage uh, concerns about wildfire risks and the liabilities that wildfire risk um, have created. There have been some some absolutely devastating effects of uh, particularly the Northern California wildfires, not just on states and, and localities, but on, in this case, investor-owned utilities. And so when we see these effects uh, going outside the state and local governments that provide a lot of these services and start affecting the bottom line of for-profit entities, investor-owned utilities in particular... It begins, I think, make it very real that these risks are are here and that they're manifest in not just our budgets in the public sector, but the way that uh, our friends in the private sector think about this as well. So I know you've looked at this as well, Liz, and thinking not just about wildfires, but also uh, many other kinds of natural disasters that we've seen happening with a lot more frequency and intensity. Can you talk a little bit about your work here and, and uh, how it informs uh, some of the themes that we're talking about here today?
1: Yeah, Justin, clearly the cost of natural disasters in general, uh, wildfires is what we're talking about now, is is on on the rise and certainly becoming more and more uh, of a of a financial impact. I mean, you had PGE, a disaster an a investor-owned utility, file for its second bankruptcy ever uh, after the, the paradise fire, because largely because of all the, the lawsuits associated that with that, which are still ongoing clearly there is is a cost to all of this and it's something that as we were talking before this i went through my my little cash and credit rating agency reports i get and there are more and more Credit rating agents more and more reports, just kind of addressing this stuff. There was one recently from Kroll on drought risk in 2022, and it noted, which I didn't realize, that we are experiencing the third longest drought since the 1930s, which was when, when the, you had the Dust Bowl and the huge uh, migration from from the the those western from those states uh, out. And big picture, it, it's you have an impact on on populations, you have an impact on cost of living. Insurance will help tax base, and it just shows to me that trickle down effect of of what natural disasters can can have on the overall economy, and credit rating agencies are paying more attention. It it reminds me a little bit of I don't want to say these are the same, but the opioid opioid crisis in that the cost of that also is super. Tricky in that it, it trickles down kind of everywhere in state and local government finances. It's not just a health thing. It's an economy thing. It's it's a quality of life thing. The costs of that are are in a lot of different places in state and local government coffers. And credit rating agencies have addressed that too. So I, I see this kind of increasing trend of it being a considered a, a something to write about and note about and follow from the credit rating agencies, which tells me that state and local governments should not be far behind.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a really really interesting and complex question. You know, one of the one of the virtues of our federalist system is that you have the ability for local and state responses to to policy questions to take on local flavor right and to craft local solutions, the the so-called laboratories of democracy argument, and that creates all sorts of of advantages in so many areas, but when you get into these large-scale natural disasters where the effects are not necessarily locally targeted. They might affect an entire region or an entire state, or certainly have an economic impact that goes way beyond just the place most immediately affected by a natural disaster. Suddenly it exposes some of the weaknesses with that federalist system. And, and in particular, as of late the lack of what I think most people in the disaster space would call a, the lack of a coherent federal and and regional and state response to a lot of these, because of ongoing concerns. And so When you're running local budgets or running a state budget suddenly you have all of this complexity to contend with and especially with the way as you were saying money moves through that system there's all kinds of accounting budgeting financial planning financial reporting technical issues that that have to be dealt with and so like with most things in in state and local finance it ends up being a really complicated management challenge at the local level even though the disaster itself may have originated hundreds of miles away. And that is in some ways, the very pressing question that we're having to deal with when we think about the interface of natural disasters and state and local public finance. <laughs> Well, we are pleased to welcome now to the Public Money Pod, Colin Ford, who is with Pew Charitable Trusts and is part of a team that just produced a really, really interesting piece of research titled Wildfires Burning Through State Budgets. And we are thrilled to have him here to tell us about that report and and what it means and how we ought to think about it. Colin, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if you could just uh, t- tell us first and foremost uh, how this report came about. How did this land on your radar, and and what motivated you know, taking the kind of deep dive that you take into this particular issue?
2: Sure. So my team at Pew studies the way that federal spending policy affects state budgets and economies, and for the last six or seven years, we've been using that lens to look at the issue of disaster spending. Uh, you know, the reason behind that, I think, is is not hard to guess. You know, disasters are becoming more more frequent. severe and with that becoming more expensive to governments so that line of research has really focused on the roles of different levels of government federal state and local when it comes to spending on disasters what we know about how much they're spending and kind of the spoiler there is that we don't know as much as we should and then you know thinking about how knowing more about what they spend could help us make different decisions about how we invest our resources in ways that could ultimately manage the risk that, that, that we're facing um, as it relates to disasters moving forward. As we've been doing that work, we've always you know seen wildfires as kind of their own beast. There are some different intergovernmental dynamics that exist as it relates to wildfires that I can talk more about. Um, there are different federal agencies and state agencies involved than when you're thinking about you know floods or, or hurricanes or others, you know agencies like the u s. Forest Service and Department of Interior. And so all of that, along with growing, acreage burning and government spending on on wildfires made us really interested in digging into this topic. I'd also add that we're really interested in state budgeting in particular. Unlike the federal government, states need to balance their spending and revenue. So as these costs are rising, as as disasters are becoming more frequent and severe, as wildfires are becoming bigger um, and more expensive, it's especially important uh, to be thinking about the state level in, in that role.
1: Um, certainly, Colin. Wildfires are their own beast, particularly for for the the places where they occur the most. Can you tell us some? What are some of the you know big takeaways that you hope policymakers get from this research?
2: Sure. I think the first is that wildfire spending, to the extent that we can quantify it, is on the rise. Combined spending by the U.S. Forest Service and the Department of Interior, which are two of the most important federal agencies that are involved in wildfire, doubled. Uh, between fiscal year 2011 and 2020, it's much harder to to come by state data on, on expenditures. But Washington, for example, tripled its spending on wildfires if you compare the first half of the 2010s to the second half. So, you know, main takeaway from that is that it's putting budget pressure on states. And that's really taking two forms. The first is how to adequately budget for growing and unpredictable suppression and recovery costs. And the other is how to make sure there's funding available to invest in mitigation, which are things like prescribed burns or mechanical thinning of brush uh, that can help reduce risk in the long-term and hopefully then start to manage the, the growing costs and expense related to wildfires. And I can talk a little bit about both of those issues. Yeah, by all means. Sure. So on on the the budgeting for suppression recovery front, our biggest takeaway was that states are relying on backwards looking estimates in order to ascertain how much they should appropriate for wildfires in a given budget cycle. So for example, Alaska bases its wildfire suppression appropriations on the least expensive of the last 10 years. And Nevada uses average expenditures from the previous five years minus what they received back from the federal government. And we, we found that Increasingly, those types of estimates are really undershooting the actual cost of wildfires during a given year. And therefore, states are relying on emergency budget mechanisms, um, things like passing supplemental appropriations, moving money around state government um, in order to find the money when, when they need to. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with using those mechanisms, they exist for a reason. Disaster costs, wildfire costs are unpredictable. But the over reliance and consistent reliance on those mechanisms is removing the true cost of wildfires from the budget debate, Um, and that's in in turn obscuring the budget impact of wildfires, as well as impeding you know long term planning about you know what is this costing us? How can we be doing things differently uh, to manage these costs into the future? That kind of segues into our findings around uh, budgeting for mitigation. So we did find that. There was a lot of consensus and here. I should mention that, you know, our our studies primarily based on interviews with state and and federal wildfire officials, Um, there was a lot of consensus around the value of mitigation, the fact that it it is an effective means of of managing costs over time. That's been borne out in major investments in mitigation, both from the federal and state level. Um, So through the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, Congress um, invested billions of dollars in wildfire mitigation, states like California and Washington have made their own significant investments. But we found that despite this kind of momentum behind mitigation, barriers still persist. Those include the degree to which suppression costs um, tend to crowd out mitigation, difficulty implementing and accessing the federal funding that's become available, and just facing the scale of the issue. you know, Millions of acres at risk, at least 24 million homes at moderate to high risk and just kind of matching up the resources available with with the sheer need in order to manage this rising problem.
0: Right? I wonder I th- I found in the report one of the some of the most interesting findings from your qualitative work especially was around why it is that the suppression efforts tend to crowd out the mitigation efforts. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that if you wouldn't mind.
2: Sure, this is an interesting case because it's played out at the federal level in addition to how it's playing out in states. So in 2018, uh, Congress passed something that people in in the wildfire world called the Wildfire Funding Fix. um, And that was an effort to create a new funding source for federal agencies for wildfire suppression. The reasoning behind it was that increasingly, as fires were becoming more expensive, those suppression costs were eating into the budget that those agencies had for forest management and mitigation, creating something called fire borrowing that in effect then left less and less money each year uh, to do the type of kind of forward thinking or, or strategic or you know, potentially cost saving activities that, that we're talking about here. So, so that was Congress's solution was to provide, you know, a, an additional funding mechanism for those agencies to tap um, when, when suppression costs exceeded what had been budgeted, what we found at the state level is that there's really a state by state story there. Some states, um, for example, Florida, have just one pot of money where both suppression costs and, and mitigation costs are coming from other states like California have created both contingency budgeting mechanisms sort of, you know, mirroring the federal level and have invested their own funds specifically in in mitigation. So so one of our takeaways here is, you know, if you're a state that wants to prioritize mitigation, uh, which is one of our recommendations, one way to do that in addition to just putting more money towards it is to protect that mitigation funding from encroachment from suppression. The fire when it's there is going to capture attention, is going to capture, you know, political will to deal with it, understandably. and, And you need to be thinking about how to Protect and prioritize that funding that's supposed to go towards reducing risk in the long term.
0: Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like what what we need are more more photo ops and press conferences uh, around what might otherwise be far less exciting mitigation efforts, as opposed to helicopters showing up to put out fires in
2: that crisis moment. It's very hard to show the fire that didn't happen. Right. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> it reminds me of. A similar concept with infrastructure maintenance, and I mean, this sounds like kind of a form of it only with wildfires. And uh, you know, it's it's not until the bridge collapses, for example, that the attention really gets paid, and even that tends to be temporary. I want to hear a little bit more about the differences in uh, in data gathering, and because you mentioned at the at the outset, federal data right there, pretty easy to to see. But the state-by-state state information, and, and especially considering where the different kinds of funds that you've had to, you know, find this money in, can you talk about the the challenge, the the issues in tracking the data?
2: For sure, and I think it it helps to to pull out and think about different activities that we're talking about when it comes to wildfires. Because I think, like we've just been saying, you know, the the thing that comes to everybody's mind is you know a helicopter or a plane, you know, putting out big flames in in, in a forest, but in fact, wildfire management as, as a practice includes both that suppression cost, but also activities before and after a fire happens. So if you think about before a fire happens, uh, governments are spending on prevention, which is you know stopping the fire from starting in the fir- first place, mitigation, these activities we've been talking about to reduce risk, and preparedness. So that's making sure the resources and equipment and people that you'll need are kind of there when, when the fire hits you know as I said during the fire you're spending on suppression and then after the fire you're spending on long- term recovery or you know some mm-hmm. some post fire mitigation um, that, that can happen as well so so that's one of the complexities about the data right and, and the spending is just the mm-hmm. the the suite of activities that are going into this outside of just suppression. I think another challenge is how the system for paying for wildfires in the US is split across levels of government, federal, state, and local. And the fact that responsibility for paying for a fire is dictated by where the fire starts. So that creates, you know, a situation where um, if you know a fire starts on federal land, ultimately it's the financial responsibility of the of the federal government to pay for it. That said, as you can imagine, <laughs> fires aren't very interested in, you know, where the line is between federal land, state land, private land. So in practice, governments uh, have entered into a whole slew of cooperative agreements uh, across the country that are set up in order to coordinate suppression activities. So for example, like, like I was saying, if it starts on federal land, say that local f- fire company is, is the closest resource they're able to go and, and deal with the fire, fire during suppression. Those cooperative agreements also dictate and and oversee the reimbursement for services that happens after that type of activity. So to use that same example, if if that local fire company is, or the state fire company is is putting out a fire on federal land, they will then bill the federal government for that funding um, and ultimately be reimbursed for it. So you have, in addition to all of these activities happening, all these levels of government paying for things you have them reimbursing one another for those services that they've provided under cooperative agreements and sometimes those reimbursements as we learned in our research stretching out over months or even years before being finalized it's that level of complexity that makes it you know difficult to pin down uh, sometimes you know what the spending is that said some states have taken steps to capture that spending as i said at the outset You know, we are able to provide information about what Washington State spent um, in part because they underwent an audit where they were able to tease out all of that that information. Uh, California also has some some spending information available. And, you know, other researchers, uh, including from the University of Idaho, have, uh, you know, gone out to states and requested that type of information from them. That's a very laborious process. You know, our recommendation would be to create the type of tracking and reporting uh, that would provide more continuous information about spending um, at the state level um, that that shows you know information about not just suppression but some of the other activities involved and acknowledges that funding from different sources is is feeding into it. Sometimes it's hard to disaggregate um, from available you know budget documents what's federal money, what's state money, and that's really important information if we're going to you know figure out how we can manage fire costs moving forward.
0: So Colin, we've talked about some of the challenges here and you've mentioned some of the best practices that the report does outline in areas like thinking differently about budgeting and planning for wildfires, some of these data collection efforts, tracking, cost accounting, all of those kinds of concerns. You know, one of the areas that you mentioned a second ago is just the lag time between when the money is spent and then when the money is reimbursed, particularly on the federal side. What if you just talk about that in a little bit more detail? That seems like it would be really challenging from a from a budgeting and planning perspective in particular if you're a state or a locality.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly right that you know, for states and localities, this is a bigger issue because you know, especially at the state level, you need to balance your 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 spending and revenue and if a state pays up front for a significant wildfire cost um, and and is then awaiting reimbursement that's creating a cash flow issue that 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 can stem over fiscal years creating budgeting challenges and and budgeting gaps There, really impeding the type of you know planning that that a state would hope to do if they knew exactly you know what their revenue uh would be coming in uh so that's definitely something that we heard from states in terms of a challenge that they face as it relates to budgeting for these costs. And it's one that you know, it's not difficult to foresee becoming more of a challenge. If you know, wildfires are continuing to grow, expenses related to them are growing as well. These gaps uh, that, that states are needing to fill year over year may very well grow in, in kind um, and, and make that even more of a snag when it comes to, to, to budgeting for these unpredictable but growing costs.
1: So, looking overall, looking at the data, I mean, I'm thinking a lot too about California. That's where some of the largest and most expensive wildfires have been. And I remember a while back looking at the very issue you were talking about one year. Um, I think it was in 2018 when they had a bunch of wildfires that year. And certainly there was uh, budget issues with the state. And also, and we haven't gotten into this, but look, creating funding or creating funds for residents to get assistance. So this is kind of a two-parter. <laughs> the The first part is, are there other sort like, resident assistance, wildfire assistance, or like insurance costs, kind of more hidden costs of wildfires that people that policymakers should also be kind of flagging as as a as an increased cost.
2: It's a good question. You know this study was particularly focused on government spending as the cost that that we mm-hmm. wanted to capture. Uh, a really interesting report that just came out this month from the Western Forestry Leadership Coalition actually looks at defining costs to states writ large, and they create a typology of, you know, the direct costs, like the things that we're talking about essentially today, indirect costs, which are more to society, and then another set of indirect costs, which are these mitigation investments. So, so that's one way to think about, you know, the different costs involved. Because certainly, as, as as you're talking about, there are many. Negative impacts of of wildfires that go beyond you know state coffers,
1: and the other thing I was wondering is, were there any things that surprised you as you were going through this research? Uh, and I'll say to me, it's it's interesting because, of of course, you would expect wildfire spending would increase but i was still surprised by the by the by the numbers and so i'm i'm curious you know what was that process like for you as you were going through this
2: you know certainly we had you know the hunch of the hypothesis that you know spending was going up and that states were having to pass a lot of extra funding to go with it but i think the consistency with which that was the case in the six states that we looked at was a bit of a surprise so all six of the states had passed some sort of additional funding. Um, and actually, when we were writing the report, one of our states, Florida, hadn't passed any additional funding. And then, you know, as we were writing, they they then did. So, you know, our, our sample, you know, was, was complete in terms of the fact that states are needing to pass extra funding and, and significant extra funding to deal with wildfires. I'd say the other element that we weren't necessarily going into this looking for but that came up time and again in our interviews related to workforce and i think that goes back to a budgeting question because you have to think about how do you budget for the workforce you need to get into more detail about that workforce related to wildfire issues has traditionally been uh, very tied to suppression to to putting out fires and has been a largely seasonal uh, volunteer and in some cases, incarcerated workforce. Um, and so states are facing the challenge, not only of rising need for that workforce for more of the year, more, more consistently for bigger fires, but also a need for a different type of workforce that is trained in mitigation activities. So not necessarily trained to fight fires, but trained to do the types of prescribed burns and you know thinning of brush and and other type of mitigation activities, which could be a year-round endeavor. And then also to manage the finances around uh, wildfires, particularly as you know, large investments um, in, in federal funding have come their way, um, figuring out how do you actually manage those funds, implement those funds, and in the case of competitive grants, apply for those funds. And, and that can be quite a challenge, um, not just for states, but also for for localities in particular, uh, those that are uh, have lower capacity. So certainly, it's an issue that underlies the challenges that 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 we talk about in the report. And, and like I said, was not necessarily part of our you know questionnaire for for interviewees when when we went into the research, but one that came up time again.
0: So, Colin, clearly, this, as you mentioned, this report was motivated by the fact that there are just undeniable increases in in costs in this area, specifically in the wildfire context. Um, And yet, we see the same kinds of increased costs due to natural disasters, and particularly, you could argue, climate risk or or, uh, climate mitigator, lack of climate mitigated activities. And I'm wondering if. if your findings here have any implications outside of the wildfire context, it would seem that some of the challenges that you're describing here uh, might apply in, in other you know, natural disaster or climate risk-informed uh, kinds of policy areas.
2: Certainly. And I, I mentioned that at the outset that this wildfire research kind of stemmed from a broader body of research that, that my team's been working on for the last several years. And one of the previous reports that we put out focused more broadly on disaster budgeting mechanisms at the state level. Uh, we found a lot of variation uh, across the 50 states about you know who has a statewide disaster account, who can pull on their state rainy day fund for disaster costs, um, how they can use some of the emergency funding mechanisms that I talked about in the, in the wildfire context. And you know one of our big takeaways for states about that was that they should be really assessing how those budgeting mechanisms work and how they're using them in this era of rising costs and more frequent and severe disasters, it may be that those worked well when the idea was we're going to have something in place in case something happens this year. But in this, uh, you know, reality we're facing, where in all likelihood something is nice. going to happen this year, how is this actually playing out? You know, w- we found a lot of variability in how much states appropriate to their statewide disaster account each year. And in the wildfire space, we, we learned about the methodologies that states were using to, to come up with that number. I think in the general disaster space, many states don't have a methodology when it comes to that. And it's you know a number that they've been putting in that account for many years and it, and it remains that way. So I think certainly our recommendation around assessing your current budgeting practices holds true, uh, you know, regardless of, of the hazard that you're talking about. The same goes for mitigation. Evidence is mounting around the value of mitigation in, in fires. We talk about that in the report. But you know, research by the National Institute of Building Sciences found that, you know, every dollar invested in mitigation can save $6 in post-disaster recovery costs if you're looking across hazards. So, you know, the, the idea that states should not only be thinking about how they budget for recovery or responding to, to disasters, but also making sure that they're providing funding towards mitigation. Uh, leveraging federal funding towards mitigation to help drive down that risk over time and hopefully drive down that spending over time is, is critical in that case as well.
1: It sounds to me almost what you're describing is sort of like a natural disaster-focused stress test in some some ways. Um, but you know, instead of the economy going up or down, it's it's how how extreme is is the, uh, the natural disaster season? You know, whether it's hurricanes or wildfires or some floods, something else.
2: Yeah, one thing we talk about in our recommendation around budgeting is. In this wildfire study, we saw states using these backwards looking estimates to calculate their appropriations, but suggesting that they take into account the fact that risk is rising when they're coming when they're coming up with those with those estimates. So not necessarily just looking backwards in order to to figure out what to budget, but you know, thinking about the future.
0: Very interesting. Well, thanks again to Colin Ford for sharing uh, some of the findings from a really interesting piece of research on uh, wildfires and what they mean for state budgets. We appreciate them taking the time and uh, Liz and I both have have always been uh, fans of the work that Pew does. It's always very informative and great to see yet another contribution of theirs to the important work of uh, understanding state and local public finance. So it's time for Listener Question, our extra credit segment, and uh, this time we have a question on climate risk and credit ratings. My name is Theodore Kobleski. I am a quantitative risk developer at Chicago Mercantile Exchange Group. I'm a big fan of your podcast. And I wanted to know, do rating agencies consider the climate risk when evaluating credit worthiness for state and local governments? Thank you very much. Well, that is a very interesting question as all of our extra credit questions seem to be. And uh, so on this one, I think there's a there's kind of a short answer and a long answer. Uh, the, the short answer is, is of course, that uh, it, that the ratings agencies in general, when we're talking about state and local, Let's let's keep it focused specifically, just for the purpose of our discussion here, on state and local government general obligation credits. So those are bonds that are backed by the full faith and credit of a of a state or a local government. We could talk about utilities or um, revenue bonds mm-hmm. that have maybe a different profile, but just for the purpose of general obligation bonds, you know, the simple answer is that the ratings agencies have told us that they're they're definitely thinking about uh, climate risk and and they're doing what they can do to try to measure it and incorporate it into ratings. But um, unlike say our friends in Europe and unlike uh, other settings, we don't as of yet have a, a specific set of sort of ESG or climate risk criteria that are incorporated directly into bond ratings for states and local governments. And the, that's the short answer. Uh, you're the one, uh, Liz, with the newsletter called The Long Story Short. So maybe uh, you can give us some of the the longer answer to that.
1: <laughs> Go against every fiber of my being. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So this question immediately made me, me think of the, the uh, there was a panel with uh, um, one and one of the panelists was a, a person from S&P uh, Global Ratings. And what he said stuck out to me. I went and dug it up from my notes. And he talked about this very subject, and he, he said that's the biggest challenge for, for credit rating agencies right now is can we, s as a company, develop a methodology that we can stand behind, defend, is explainable and applicable across the market. And those those are the big challenges that all credit rating agencies really uh, are, are facing when it comes to how to incorporate cl- and, and how to assess climate risk in a municipality. And they are coming out, they're writing lots of, of ratings of reports, of research reports about it. I referenced one earlier in the podcast, we, we talked about that. But in terms of an actual direct line, it's it's controversial. Um, S&P, Fitch Ratings and Moody's have gone a bit further in, in explaining how they incorporate uh, climate risk into their overall credit ratings criteria, and there's there's some parts of the industry that really want to push the credit rating agencies into actually coming up with a score. Um, on the other hand, Kroll bond, bond rating agency has said we, you know, has gone a different route, and it has it it produces a lot of research on on climate change, but it doesn't go as far as the other three rating agencies in explaining how all of that is incorporated into its its credit rating and one of the kind of defining lines between these two should they or shouldn't they is you have the the one camp that says well what credit rating agencies really need to be should be doing and have done and what they're for is for bond bond bondholders and the rating tells the bondholder how likely they are to default or not on their bond and then the other camp says yes but this we're talking about a 30-year timeline or a 20-year timeline and we need to take the long view and so that's that's kind of like the two two biggest things and I, I think we're we're watching all of this this play out right now
0: yeah for sure it's it's a it's a it's interesting because it's both a, a technical and a a political challenge right and the the, the technical challenge of course being de- devising a methodology and devising a, <laughs> a a clear and transparent way of of thinking about climate risk in particular um, it's one of those things where we have legions of scientists who have talked all about uh, climate risk and, and have modeled out where it's happening, when it's going to happen, how it's going to play out. and But the fact that there's any disagreement whatsoever on exactly when and where it will happen and what kinds of assumptions you put into a model that tells you exactly when and where sea level rise or other natural disasters are going to happen makes it then a challenge for the ratings agencies because as you said their job is to be able to say with as much certainty as possible here's the factors that are affecting the the financial position of this jurisdiction and that financial position will affect its ability to repay its bonds and so they have to deal in relative knowns right or or things that are are measurable and at least explainable in a in a way that investors can understand and are made clear that they're using assumptions and, and using inputs to their models, but at least there's some understanding and some transparency around that. Climate risk is hard that way because there's there are some known unknowns and those known unknowns can easily derail uh, the kind of analysis that we're talking about here. And that's where a lot of the political controversy seems to stem from too, is the fact that because it's an it's an unknown or at least a known unknown, That we ought not be talking about it until we either learn more about it or at least take it completely outside the purview of, say, the ratings agencies and have that be more of a, a broader policy discussion or a broader budgeting discussion. But the specific question of, are these bonds going to be repaid? and how climate risk does or does not affect whether those bonds will be repaid. It might seem intuitive and obvious, but when you go back a few layers, it actually becomes a lot more complex than that, and that's the challenge that our friends at the rating agencies face at the moment. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at ushicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website farmersfieldonline.com and her substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks as always to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.